it's winter time. Snow's on the ground. It's late March, but this is in Germany, a little further north, just over 100 years ago. A farm known as Hinterkaifeck. One day, uh, the owner of the farm sees footprints in the snow coming from the woods to the house. No footprints leaving the house. Mm-hmm. They're the only ones there. Not long after that, the entire family is found murdered. Brutally. On, brutally murdered. And whoever murdered them stayed on the property for a few days. Lived with alongside bodies. the bodies. Yeah. Cooked their food, you know, kept their fire going, took care of the animals <laughs> before the family was finally found. Obviously cared for the animals more than they did the family. This is, I don't want to say a locked door mystery, but it's pretty, pretty close. What happened to the, the family here? There's multiple potential suspects on a, a cold case that's, that's going on over 100 years. Tonight we're talking about the story of Hinterkaifeck. From a child born into this world, we are taught what to believe. Close-minded, we become fearful to be deceived. Still, we desire to know what lies beyond that locked door. The art of the storyteller conjuring tales of legend and lore. History hidden, lost knowledge, things forgotten, and the unknown. These are the things that direct us and will set the tone. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Nightmares on the Lost Highway. Now, Bill, I will say when you when you brought this up, it did not register. But as I dove in, I quickly had flashes back to over a year ago. My daughter, Shannon, shout out Shannon, had watched a short video on this. She's really big into true crime and all that. And she literally said, Dad, you and Bill need to do a podcast on this. And I had written it on a piece of paper. And I think I told you earlier, probably put it in my pocket and washed it in the washer. Yeah. I mean, I lost it. But this all came back to me, so it's like this. This was an intriguing story. I loved it, and, but it, it was really struck home because it's like, oh, this is one that my daughter had asked me. Shame on me, my daughter <laughs> who listens to us suggested this over a year ago, and I didn't even use you know one of her suggestions. Well, Hinterkaifeck's been on my list since the beginning because um, back when I had a regular Dungeons and Dragons game, and we met, if not weekly, semi-weekly. Joe was one of our was one of our players, a friend of mine. I've known him since, well, since him and my brother were very, very young. Joe's been a, a family friend and a good guy. A little strange, but, you know, we would we would talk to each other about these kinds of stories all the time. And Joe doesn't go in for paranormal stuff, but unsolved mystery things, you know, he, he mm. digs that. And so he was, he, he had brought up Hinterkaifeck one day and we was like, what is that? So we got to talk about it and he was telling the story much as we're going to tell it today. And it was just, just a really unsettling story. Very. To, to read the details and he's like, yeah, you know, whoever it was, they were in the house, blah, blah, blah. you know, it was like the footprints in the snow and all this. It's, it's really a, a crazy story. And again, there's so many little, I, I knew the big picture part of it, if you will, but to, to do the research and start to read some of the other aspects of the story, like the family dysfunction and, and things like that. Oh, one, one it's of like the, an onion with so many layers. Yeah, One of the potential murderers was, dead allegedly before yeah. the murders happened yeah. so it's like wow what is going on here yeah i know this is your podcast but i'll i'll do a very short little short story version and then we'll we'll really get into the meat of it the hinterkaifeck murders occurred on the evening of march 31st 1922 when six inhabitants of a small barbarian farmstead located about 
43 miles north of Munich, Germany, were murdered by an unknown assailant. Now, the six victims were as follows. Andreas Gruber, age 63, kind of the father figure. Yeah. His wife, Kazila Gruber, aged 72. Now, I'm going to say Kazilia. Kazilia? That's the way it's written. I mean, that's the way it looks to me. Okay. But their widowed daughter, Victoria Gabriel, age 35, and then Victoria's children, Kazila, another Kazila named after her grandmother, age seven, a Joseph, age two. Under the circumstances, it'd probably be Yosef. Yosef? I would assume. You're going to be correcting me the entire time. Well, it's a European name. It, I, I get you. I'm, I'm not saying you're <laughs> wrong. I'm saying I'm wrong and you're right. But he was age two. And then there was the one non-family member that was a maid, Maria Bumgardner. And uh, this was 44. like her first day on the job. Literally her worst first day. First day Worst ever. first day ever. And that's coming from someone who just had a first day at the job. And that was stressful. Now, I can't imagine getting murdered at the end of it. All of these victims were found struck dead with a mattock, also known as like a it'd be grub like a pickaxe. Pickaxe. In American terms, if you want to think of it, it we, we would call it a pickaxe. The, the perpetrator perpetrators seem to live with the six corpses of their victims for at least three days. Yeah. During this time frame, they ate the food out of the house. They took care of, fed the animals on milked the property. Milked the cows. Milked the cow. Started fires in the home fireplace. And the murders are considered one of the most gruesome and puzzling unsolved crimes in all of German history. Yeah, so that's yeah. the nutshell version. And yeah, na- neighbors buckle saw- up because we're going to jump down this rabbit hole. Yeah, neighbors saw smoke coming from the chimney for days after the family would have been murdered. I mean, it's such a weird story. And, and again, when we get to the who actually committed the murders, I think in my mind, there's a pretty obvious perpetrator. It'll be interesting because I have one in my mind. We'll see if they're the same. One of the potential suspects is one of the victims. Yeah. It's it's such a crazy story. In the days leading up to March 31st, 1922, there were many strange occurrences reported in and around Hinterkaifeck. Now this, when we say Hinterkaifeck, Hinterkaifeck's not a village. It's the name of the farmstead. Yes. You know, like um, Mar-a-Lago or whatever. It's the name of the building, the name of the farm. It's not a it's not a... It's not a region not, or a... Yeah, it's not a right, town. Because yeah. I thought Hendrick was a town at first. Yeah. So no, It's just kind of the, the family, old family yeah. named farm. But in the months leading up to that, there were a lot of strange events that were reported. Uh, six months prior to the incident, the family and their former maid reported hearing strange noises coming from the attic, mm-hmm. which would ultimately lead to that maid quitting and leaving the farm altogether. She thought the place was haunted. That's what she told people. And she always felt as if she was being watched when she was on the property. So she, she, she just left. No, not to interrupt you, but to interrupt you. She also later came forward and alleged that Andreas, the father, she caught forcing himself sexually on the daughter, Victoria. That which does come could up have later. Also too. been part of the reason why she said, I'm done. I'm out of here. Apparently they were both convicted of incest in a I was gonna court. Say, yes, they were both spent, found guilty. He spent a year in prison. I think she spent a month, if I remember correctly. And I'm sorry, but why would you send the daughter to prison? Well, they were they were convicted of it, so it may be possible that maybe he wasn't forcing himself. But all the stories uh, I found was that he was forcing himself, so. Yeah, I was just like, man, pun- yeah, like this not, poor girl didn't go great. through enough punishment, but yeah, anyhow, okay. So, so again, Andreas was not a good person. Apparently, no. he was short-tempered. He'd threatened people with firearms before. He was, he was not a good dude. No. 
Andreas himself, you know, to go back, he had found a strange newspaper from Munich on the property in that, that same month. And he never had bought it. And over 40 miles away. Yeah. yeah he, he thought that maybe the postman had dropped it. However, that, that couldn't have been the case because as far as the investigations found out, no one in the area had subscribed to that particular paper. I had that even flagged the delivery man down one time and asked, you know, hey, could you have possibly dropped? There was no address label or, you know, it was just like somebody had purchased it at a newsstand. Yeah. Uh, and he said, nope, nope, never saw it. And now to go back to one of the one of the details that I find the most disturbing, chilling, however you want. Just days before the murders, Gruber told his neighbors he had found tracks of two people in the fresh snow on the property mm-hmm. that led from the forest to a broken door lock on the farm's machine room and that there were no footsteps leading away from the house. Now, from what I understand, this, this little uh, addition was kind of tacked onto the backside of an L-shaped barn, and it was used uh, for the pump or the motor that would kind of, yeah. you know, had pipes that connected, but there wasn't actually even a door on this small enclosure, which I'm going to guesstimate was about an eight by 10. So if they got in here and there was no footprints out, there was yeah, no door into go? the rest of yeah. the barn. Where, I mean, seriously, where did they go? Well, and, and later that same night, the family heard footsteps in the attic, but upon investigation, there was no one else in the building. So again, like what, what's going on? What the heck? He also noted to his neighbors that one of his house keys had gone missing. Mm-hmm. And and even like at school, one of Victoria's children had told school friends, which I assume would be the older daughter, that the family had seen a man with a thick mustache standing in the tree line watching the house. I saw that too. Now, Andreas had told several people about these strange happenings, but he refused any offers of help and never reported the incidents to the police because he didn't think they were worth noting. And any one of these individually, I lost a key. Oh, there were footprints. Any one of these individually wouldn't be anything to worry about. Now, when you pile them all together... It seems like there's something weird happening. Well, and I will say to your attic story of footsteps, you know, that's why possibly the first maid quit. You said there were several people heard it. After the murders, when they did the investigation, they found uh, piles of straw, burnt candles, remnants of food. So it definitely appeared someone was up in the attic. Well, instead of going to the police or anything, Andreas instead just borrowed a gun from one of his neighbors with the idea that he was going to protect his family and his home. Now, according to a school friend of Kazilia's, the, the, the daughter, the granddaughter, uh, she said that her mother, Victoria, had fled from the farm the night before the murders after a violent quarrel with her father and was found in the forest hours later. So, of course, her and her dad did not have the best of relationships, of course, based on what we had said earlier. Mm. There was obviously some stuff going on there. Some hanky-panky. Now, on the afternoon of Friday, the 31st of March, 1922, the new maid, Maria Baumgartner, she arrived on the farm accompanied by her sister, and her sister stayed with her there for a while. Uh, I believe she had dinner with the family and then left before night. Little did she know. And, and at this point now, she is most likely the last person to see the family alive other than the murders. Evidence would suggest that later that evening, Victoria and daughter Kazilia and her parents Andreas and Kazilia were lured into the barn through the stable. And there, one at a time, they were murdered with this matak of pickaxe. That belonged to the family there. Some people may pronounce it a matic. I always said matak. Matak of the Titans, I think it is. <laughs> they were all murdered with savage blows to the head, with Andreas's wife, Kazilia, showing signs of strangulation. After their deaths, the bodies were stacked and covered in hay, and the murderer, or murderers, then moved into, on into the living quarters, where, using the same murder weapon, they killed Yosef, who was sleeping in his bassinet, and Maria, the maid, in her bedchamber. Now, four days passed before the bodies were discovered at Hinterkaifeck, 
Um, again, the murderers had stayed there at least three of those days. They ate food, bread. They cut meat from the pantry. They ate the bread. They took care of the animals. They milked the cows. I mean, they were living with these bodies in the home. The discovery of these bodies starts, the process begins, and it is a process. They don't just stumble upon them. April 1st, coffee sellers Hans and Edward Shirovsky arrive at Hinterkaifeck to take an order. They go up to the door. They knock. No one answers. They go around. They knock on the window. No one answers. They walk around the yard. They don't see anybody. They notice the gate to the machine house is open, but they don't think anything of it. There's no reason to go in there. Obviously, you know, they're trying to get people's attention. No one's paying attention. So maybe they're gone. They don't know. So with no one there to, to strike a deal with, they go ahead and leave. Now, obviously, Kazilia, the younger Kazilia, she's been absent from school for a few days. And mm-hmm. Obviously, the family did not show up for Sunday worship. Uh, on April 3rd, the postman notices that the mail he had delivered over the last two days has sat there untouched. On April 4th, local mechanic Albert Hoffner goes to Hinterkaifeck. Uh, he's there to repair an engine. I thought this was a big one. Uh, he stated he had, he had not seen any of the family when he arrived, but he could hear the sounds of the farm animals and the dog inside the barn. So after waiting around for a while to see if anybody shows up, he decides he's going to go ahead and start his repair. He was there about four and a half hours. And he stated that he actually had to break the lock to get into yeah. the same little storage building we were talking about. And he was there for like four and a half hours, worked on and then repaired the lock. And then you said something key. He heard the dog and the animals in the barn. When he came out, the dog was tied outside. I did not find that. Detail. Yes. See, it gets weirder every yes. time I hear the story. So it's like, okay, obviously he heard the dog, which exactly you said, in the barn. He didn't even make that connection. He just remembered leaving. He goes, yeah, and the dog was out. And that was later. He went into town and he was just, you know, I'm sure just maybe having a beer at the at the pub and kind of talking about his day. And then it kind of dawned on him. He's like, the dog was in the barn locked up, but when I left, it was there. And then he was like, well, why didn't they answer the door? He even said he went up and looked in the windows, pecked on the glass, you know, all this stuff. I thought that was really, really strange. So later that day, around 3.30 p.m., Lawrence Schlittenbauer, who was apparently a guide in the area, I believe he kind of knew everybody, and if you were in the region, he could point you out to the where you needed to go, you know, whatever you were looking for. Uh, he sent his son, Johan, and stepson, Josef, to Hinterkaifeck to see if they could make any contact with the family. Because at this point in time, people were starting to take note that, hey, we haven't heard from these guys in a while. Uh, they came back and told their father they had not seen anyone. So Schlittenbauer headed to the farm the same day with Michael Pohl and Jacob Sigel. And when they entered the barn, this is where they found the bodies of Andreas and his wife, Kazilia, daughter, Victoria, and granddaughter, Kazilia. And then shortly afterwards, they found the chambermaid, Maria, and the youngest family member, Josef, murdered in the homestead. Now, the closest police department was in Munich, so that's 45 miles, give or take. And by the time Inspector George Reingruber arrived to conduct his initial investigations, he just, the, the crime scene was ruined at this point in time. Dozens of people who had been on the property at this point, they'd walked through the crime scene, they'd interacted with evidence, I believe bodies had been moved. There was one guy that had got hungry, went inside yeah, the what, kitchen, made breakfast made for some of them. <laughs> yeah, they moved stuff around. So, I mean, the, as far as crime scenes go, it was it was a disaster. I will just say this Lauren Schlitzenbauer that he finds, pay attention yeah. to that name. He's going to come up multiple times here. So the day after the bodies were found, court physician Johann Baptiste Almuller performed autopsies in the barn. Now, this is going to be a little graphic. So if you're you know kind of sensitive to this kind of thing, I'm just giving you a warning. This is what he found. Kazilia Gabriel, Victoria's daughter, the, what was she, nine, ten years old, she had her lower jaw shattered and suffered severe head injuries 
but it was obvious she had not been killed instantly. Kazilia Gruber, Victoria's mother, had seven blows to the head with a cracked skull and signs of strangulation. Victoria Gabriel had nine star-shaped wounds to the head, which I would assume would be puncture wounds from the pick. Or assume, yep. Uh, and strangulation marks on her neck. The right side of her face was smashed with a blunt object. The ones that were murdered in the house, Maria Baumgartner, the maid, was killed by blows to the face, and Josef Gruber, the two-year-old, was killed by a heavy blow to the face in his bassinet. Andreas Gruber, Victoria's father, had the right side of his face smashed, and it was established that the matok was the most likely murder weapon. The weapon itself was not found at the crime scene at the time. Now, evidence showed, like I said, that the younger Kazilia, the little girl, the nine-year-old, she had been alive for several hours after being attacked. This one's bad. And having the bodies piled on top of her. Well, and I'm going to get into a little bit more gruesome deals. She had her own finger marks around her neck. Yeah. Uh, as she most likely clutched her cut throat. Tufts of her own hair in her still hand. in her small clutched fists. Or it's believed, you know, she lingered, as you said. Maybe For a hours. couple hours. Hours. Out yeah. there surrounded by her mutilated family members. Piled. Like they were piled together. Poor, was, poor. I can't I mean, imagine. Seven years old. Seven-year-old little girl. Yeah. Now, Yosef, the, the infant that was found in the bassinet, interesting thing here, a piece of his mother's clothing had been tossed over his body, and there was a suitcase that was out on the bed with some of the, her clothes in it, Victoria's clothes in it. So that was kind of an odd detail. At first, they suspected the motive to be robbery. Police uh, interrogated traveling craftsmen, vagrants, and several you know, inhabitants from the surrounding villages. However, they gave up on robbery as the potential motive when they found a large amount of money still in the house. Mm-hmm. Apparently, they had money, and, and a lot of people knew about that, but I mean, obviously they weren't robbed. Didn't seem to be the purpose. Whoever had committed the crime, like we said, they'd remained at the farm for several days. They'd fed the cattle, milked the cows, consumed all the bread in the kitchen, cut meat from the pantry. I mean, they stayed there. That, that in itself is kind of sick. That is morbid. Now, with no clear motive, police began to formulate a list of suspects. And despite multiple arrests, the murderer or murderers have never been found. The case was officially closed in 1955. And final interrogations took place as late as 1986. Wow. Uh, now, this was before Chief Superintendent Conrad Mueller retired, and he wanted, to, he wanted to try to close that case, but unfortunately, no luck. Now, court records say it was that the victims were probably lured into the barn by the sound of restless animals with a stranger on the property. However, it was later tested that if a human being was standing in the barn screaming, that would not be heard inside the house. So they couldn't have been lured out. Now, again, to kind of lay out the house, it was kind of in an L shape. And I found some diagrams online. Imagine the house, which sounded like was a two-story with an attic on the very end. And then this elongated, like an L shape would come around. But right next to the house is the area where the bodies were found. So they were lured out of that house into kind of some holding corrals interior. And there was a hallway, for lack of a better term. A narrow hallway. They said that two people could not even walk shoulder to shoulder through. That's the area the bodies were found in a pile of straw. So again, how are you going to lure people out one by one and then maybe throw some straw over one and then yeah. get another one to come out and throw some straw on that one? This would have this would have been, I mean, kind of planned out. I, I, I don't understand yeah. how this could have occurred. So, so the night after the crime, three days before the bodies would be discovered, artisan Michael Plokel, happened to pass by Hinterkaifeck, and 
he saw the oven had was on, you know, there was smoke coming from the chimney there. And a person approached him with a lantern, blinding him in the darkness. So he couldn't see who he was talking to. You know, startled, scared by, by this, he kind of took off, heading on his way. But he did notice before he left that the smoke from the fireplace had a revolting smell to it. So hmm. no one followed up on this. I guess he did mention it to someone, but nobody looked into it. Uh, and they never did were able to determine what it was that was burned in the oven. On April 1st at 3 a.m., farmer and butcher Simon Reiblander, maybe how you say that. There's letters in there I'm not familiar with. It's German. I don't speak German. No. But on his way home, he saw two mysterious figures at the edge of the forest. And when the strangers saw him, they turned around so that their faces could not be seen. When he heard of the murders of Hendrik Heifek, he believed that those strangers may have been involved, but, you know, no one knew who they were. In the middle of May 1927, a stranger was said to have stopped a resident of Wedhofen, another village, about midnight, asking him questions about the murderer before yelling that he was the murderer and then taking off into the woods. <laughs> no one's ever been able to identify who he was. What the heck? So as far as who actually committed the murders at Hinter Kaifek, over the years there have been more than 100 potential suspects, mm -hmm. with the most unlikely suspect being Carl Gabriel. Now remember, I told you, some of the suspects, you're going to have to bear with us because could they have been involved? Maybe, maybe not. Carl Gabriel was the husband of the widowed Victoria Gabriel. Wait a minute, widowed at time of death? Yes. He had reportedly been killed in December of 1914 during World War I. Declared missing in action. Yeah, his body was never recovered. And after the murders, people speculated about whether or not he had actually even been killed. And, and while he was gone, of course, Victoria had conceived and given birth to son Yosef in his absence. That obviously he was not the daddy of. The boy was rumored to potentially be the product of the relationship between Victoria and her father, which of course, like we said, was documented in court, was a known fact in the village. Or thirdly, from our good friend, the neighbor, Lorenz Schlitzbauer. Who's the daddy? Yeah. He's like a Mari Povich show here. If you jump forward in time just a little bit, after the end of the Second World War, captives from the Schrobenhausen region that were released early from Soviet captivity claimed that they had been sent home by a German-speaking Soviet officer who claimed to be the Hinterkaifeck murderer. Mm. Now, some of these gentlemen would later change their statements, so that kind of puts some doubt on what they said. But because of this, some of people thought it was possible that this Soviet officer may have been Carl Gabriel. And, you know, because, again, there were people that reportedly saw him after his death. Right. And he was only missing in action. So I think now we're on to Eric's favorite suspect. Yes. Lawrence. That's who I'm definitely leaning to, as if you couldn't okay, tell. To be fair, that's who I was leaning to. All right. We're on the same way. We, we, we agree. He seems the most likely. And it was rumored that Victoria, you know, may have had an early fling with one of the neighboring farm owners, our illustrious Lorenz Schlitzbauer. You know, I said that name would come up. It's worth mentioning that this theory does have some uh, some merit. You know, at this time, however, Lorenz was already married, but his wife would pass away within a few months. And within a few months of his wife passing away, you guessed it. Old Lorenz Schlitzbauer was courting Victoria Gruber, now both as legitimate widows, even to the point where he asked the father figure, Andreas, for his daughter's hand in marriage. Now, didn't seem like Victoria's father, Andreas, and we've talked about him, he was a piece of trash. Yeah. He did not favor this union. Now, some speculate that was because Andreas had his daughter to himself living under his roof for very nefarious reasons. 
Others said it due to land disputes and some different things like that. But there was not a lot of love between Lorenz and Andreas, the father figure. Still, for quite some time, it went back and forth. Lorenz finally legally did accept the father, legally, of Joseph being his child. So I definitely think there was some merit there. And under the times and everything, that's my number one suspect. There is a chance, however, though, that Lawrence may have just done that to help Victoria because if Joseph was an incest child from father with the daughter, he could have done that to take some of the heat off of Victoria. So it could have went, you know, either way. But Andreas, I think we can all agree on, not a good man, full-blown creeper, stalker, offender, quite honestly, just inheriting, by the way, he inherited his fortune by being a hired hand on the family farm and marrying Kazila. So this man came almost dirt poor, married into the rich family of the, the Hitterkaifik, and then married the daughter, and then just kind of took the reins, took over the farm and, you know, with, with everything there. Well, Schlittenbauer, more than just some of this, I mean, his, his actions immediately after discovering the bodies even cast some doubt. Yeah. When him and his friends went in to investigate, they said they had to break the gate to enter the barn because all the doors were locked. However, after finding the bodies, he went and unlocked the front door with a key. With a key that and possibly entered, had been missing. Yeah, and entered alone, which after the fact, many people thought was suspicious. When they questioned him, he said, oh, it was hung here on the wall. Well, yeah. <laughs> and it's also allegedly the same key that Andrea said had gone missing. Yeah. Yeah. Now it's possible that, you know, as a neighbor and you know, someone romantically involved with Victoria, maybe she had provided it to him. Now, the, the two men that were with him, I think which were kind of neighboring farmers as well, they they mentioned that he definitely led the brigade, if you will. Yeah. You know, this way, back through this way. He, he definitely had the lay of the land and said that when he saw the leg and foot hanging out from the straw, it didn't really seem to phase him. He just went and kind of drugged this yeah. body out. Well, and they said like, he was taken off and going and investigating th- things by himself, even though no one had any idea if the murderer was still there or not. Yeah. And the so, guys were like, hey, you're, in, you're interrupting a murder scene. Even, yeah. even in this time frame, they knew you know, we shouldn't be touching this stuff. Yeah. For, for a long time, the locals suspected that he was the murderer. And also because he apparently made comments that seemed like only the murderer would know these things. So, And it was strange. They said that you know, he, he pulled out a total of four bodies out of that you know, pile of straw. For whatever reason, he spent some time with the seven-year-old Kazila, which now this is the one we said that, you know, her throat was cut, probably yeah. lingered the longest, clutched pieces of her hair. They described the two men with him, Lorenz, is describing him as they, he pulled her out to pose her in a sitting position in one corner of the hallway. The two men said they were so appalled and taken over by grief of the bloodied victims, they left the barn nauseated, I'm sure vomiting sick. And Lorenz is in here like setting her up in the corner and posing her. And I mean, again, this guy seems to be a little calloused towards this. They actually went, they left him and went to town to get the police, which of course then we said took several hours before they got yeah. there. Yeah. There, there's definitely some, um, some things he did that, that cast a lot of doubt on him. Uh, according to information in the case files, a local teacher discovered him visiting the remains of the house, which was demolished shortly afterward in 1925. And when he asked why he was there, Schlittenbauer stated, kind of with a 
faraway look in his eyes that the murderer's attempt to bury the bodies in the barn had been hindered by the frozen ground. Hmm. Many consider this enough evidence that, you know, he had knowledge of the conditions of the ground at the time of the murders. Although, realistically, it's wintertime. Frigid. He's a neighbor. He, he would, you know, he had local experience. He, he would kind of know that. There's other speculation that he murdered the family after Victoria demanded that he financially support young Yosef. So maybe he wasn't trying to step up into the fatherly role. Who knows? Now, in, before he died in 1941, Schlittenbauer won several civil claims for slander uh, against people who described him as the hinter Kaifek murderer. So, you know, he, he, he definitely held up that he was innocent until the time of his death. Another potential suspect was Adolf Gump. Imagine being murdered by someone named Gump. Gump. Bubba, of course, that Bubba Gump. I was going to say that has different connections nowadays yeah. than it, you know. But uh, he had uh, connections to the Free Corps Oberland. And in 1951, prosecutor Andreas Pop investigated brothers Adolf and Anton Gump in relation to the murders in Hinderkai effect when their sister, Krasintia Meyer, claimed on her deathbed that they had committed the murders. After a short time, however, Anton was dismissed uh, again. And in 1954, the case against them was dropped completely for lack of evidence. In 1971, a woman named Therese T. wrote a letter citing an event in her youth when, at the age of 12, she witnessed her mother receiving a visit from the mother of the brothers, Carl and Andreas S. That's the only name I have. The woman claimed that her sons were the two murderers of Hinterkaifeck and said Andreas regrets that he lost his penknife during the conversation. And in fact, when the farm was demolished in 1923, a pocket knife was found that could not clearly be identified as belonging to anyone that, that was there. Oh, wow. Uh, but it could also belong to, you know. The repairman or anybody, whatever. Really. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what do we say? Dozens of, of people had trampled the ground? Oh, yeah. Made breakfast and everything. So this was investigated, but, you know, they didn't have enough evidence. I'd like to talk about the new maid on her first day, uh, Maria Bumgardner. Uh, she was found in her bedroom, which was adjacent to the kitchen. You know, obviously she was there as a maid, so she would be there close to the kitchen. Uh, her body was found partially under the bed with the bed sham partially pulled over her body. And it was believed due to her blunt force trauma to the skull, this is not something she would have reached up to do. Again, it was kind of like Joseph, the child, had a piece of his mother's clothing laid over. The, the murderer or murderers could have possibly pulled the bed sham uh, partially over her body. Uh, someone had also stacked neatly piles of clothes in the windows of the maid's bedroom because I guess her windows were a little bit lower the thought was to keep anybody from possibly looking through the windows from outside. And then going back to the, the pickaxe and the whole attic instance, now, police originally found a pickaxe leaning against the wall nearby the bodies in the barn. They thought this could be the murder weapon. However, it really didn't match up with the blunt force marks. Weeks later, when the police would further explore the attic, a small gardening shovel was found up there which was consistent with the type of injuries the murder victims had and also had blood on it. And again, this goes up there. They, they said there were piles of straw. They thought that could have not only been for heat, but to help cushion the sounds where maybe footsteps wouldn't be heard as easily from someone living or staying up there, which could all go back to the two sets of footprints that Bill very early on yeah. in the podcast mentioned. So we've got a few more suspects too. Um, Peter Weber was named a suspect by Josef Betts. The two had worked together in the winter of 1919-1920 as laborers and shared a room. 
And according to Betts, Weber spoke of a remote farm that he knew about called Hinter Kaifek. Ooh, coincidence. And he knew that only one old couple lived there with their daughter and her two children. Uh, Betts testified in the hearing that Weber had suggested killing the old man to get to the money. But when Betts turned down the offer, Weber stopped talking to him about it. But again, money was found in the house. Yeah, so what robbery wasn't the motive. Eh. Former maid, Krasins Rieger, who worked there from November 1920 to about September 1921, suspected that the brothers Anton and Carl Bischler to be the, the murderers. Anton Bischler had helped with a potato harvest to Hinter Kaifek, and he knew the layout of the property pretty well. Rieger said Bischler talked to her often about Gruber and Gabriel family, and Anton reportedly suggested the family ought to be dead. The maid also emphasized in her interrogation that the farm dog, who barked at everyone, never barked at Anton, and so thought that Anton and Carl Bischler could have committed the murder just because they wouldn't have alerted anybody. There was also a George Siegel who had worked at Hinterkaifeck and knew of the family fortune, and supposedly he had broken into the home in November of 1920 and stolen a number of items, though he did deny it. Uh, he did state that he had carved the handle of the murder weapon himself. Mm. Uh, when he was working there and knew that the tool would have been kept in the barn passage. So he knew where it was going to be. The Thaler brothers were also listed as suspects with one story told of Andreas finding the brothers hiding in his barn two years earlier and run them off by shooting at them with a rifle. Wow. According to the statement by the former maid Rieger, the brothers had already committed several burglaries in the area before the crime. Rieger said that Joseph Thaler stood in her window at night and asked her questions about the family, but she gave no answers. So the guy was, Clearly case in the joint. In conversation, Joseph Thaler claimed to know which family member was sleeping in which room and stated that they had a lot of money. And during their conversation, Rieger noted that there was another person nearby. So brothers, again, Thaler mm -hmm. brothers. But again, a lot of those seem to be financially based and, and, none and of the that money was wasn't taken, yeah. the case. So, Author Bill James in his book, The Man from the Train, alleges that a man named Paul Mueller, a German migrant, may have been responsible for the murders. Mueller was the only suspect in the 1898 murder of a Massachusetts family, and James believed that Mueller killed dozens of victims based on his research in American newspaper archives, and that the Hinterkaifeck murders bore some striking similarities to the suspected crimes in the U.S. So a traveling serial killer. Yeah, including the slaughter of an entire family in their isolated home with the use of a blunt-edged farm tool as a weapon. Interesting. Hadn't come across that one at all. The moving and stacking of the bodies and the apparent absence of robbery as motive. He never stole from them. Just got off on the murders. Yeah. So James suspected that Mueller, who was described as a German immigrant in the media at the time, might have left the U.S. for his homeland in 1912, after private investigators and journalists began to notice and publicize patterns in murders across state lines, which may have eventually pointed in his direction. Uh, so, again, like I said, there is one suspect we haven't talked about yet, just yet. And that is Andreas himself. Himself. Andreas was, uh, if you think about the facts of the crime, Andreas's wounds were not the same as everyone else's wounds. Andreas's wounds could have been sustained by falling onto the murder weapon with force. Mm. Now, it's not to say he wasn't struck. That force could have worked in both directions. But, but Andreas's wounds could have occurred by falling on the murder weapon. And whoever committed the crime lived on the property for multiple days, took care of the animals, yeah. Ate food, cooked meals. If the bodies in the house were covered, that might be, you know, showing some remorse for what had happened. So you, the theory, the theory would is be that Andreas, he murdered them, then survived at least for two or three well, days and he, then possibly murdered fell them. and hurt himself? No. The, the theory is that Andreas killed the family, lived on the property for a few days, 
and then realizing what he had done and what he was going to, you know, if he was charged uh, okay. that he killed himself. Uh, okay. Okay. So. Hmm. Well, and that does explain a little bit, yeah. especially maybe like you said, over the infant, especially well, and, if, he yeah, was if he was the, the father, the father, well, and, and again, the poor maid on her first day, hell of in, a first day, whoever it was lived in the house, ate meat. I mean, it was like they were comfortable there. The they cow. Knew it. Yeah. Took care of the animals. I mean, I'm sorry. I know a lot of farmers. If you were a murderer, why would you milk a cow? That's what I'm saying. Like he, he's a, a very good suspect, but, but I think Schlittenbauer meets he, the criteria. He best. was the one that come to the top of my yeah. list. Well, I have a very weird twist. You know, as we had talked about, you know, the police did not arrive for several days after the murder, essentially. And when they did arrive, as we had talked about, the crime scene had been disturbed by Lorenz for sure. Uh, the closest neighbor. And possible father to the youngest murder victims, Joseph uh, Gruber, the child. And if that wasn't bad enough, you know, as we had said, 20, 30 people contaminating, for lack of a better term, the crime scene, walking through the barn, the house, making themselves breakfast, uh, going and looking at the, the bodies. So the police didn't really seem to have a lot to go on. So in a very weird twist of events, a, a sign of popular times was spirit speaking, and in particular, seances to speak with the dead. I'm not making this up. It was proposed, and the police went along with it, that each of the heads of the victims be removed and would be shipped I did read about to that. a psychic in a neighboring city. I didn't know that's why they did it. Yes. Here the heads would be placed on a table, and a seance would be performed asking the dead to speak to help solve the mysterious events. Now, folks, this is Nightmares on the Lost Highway. This dials right into the weird, creepy stuff that we try to, to get to. A handful of police even attended the seance, but I will say were quite disappointed with the outcome of what they felt was only common knowledge, really no solid leagues, very vague. The bodies by this time, headless bodies, had already needed to be buried. Nearly a week had passed by the time these heads had been shipped, the seance was performed. So then the heads were preserved and sent to the Museum of Science in Germany. There they remained until being lost during World War II, where several museums were raided and robbed by treasure seekers, Hitler's henchmen, stashing gold for the Nazis. You know, talk about a terrible terrible ending to an already tragic, terrible ending. I can't even fathom. Yeah, it's crazy. That is insane. So the last little bit of investigation in 2007, more than 80 years after the murders, students at Furstenfeldbruck Police Academy used modern investigation techniques to take another look at the case and ruled out all but one of the suspects, believed to be the murderer at Hinterkaifeck. However, the suspected killer has long since passed, and they refuse to name the person out of respect for the suspect's living relatives. Oh. So we'll, we'll never know who they thought was the murderer. Clickbait. I'm ready for headlines. So mine, how does a murder with, with seemingly a lot of evidence and multiple suspects go unsolved? Right. 19, you know, for over 100 years? Well, to be fair. From the DailyMail.com by Sophia Mann, dated May 2nd, 2023. It is easy to get away with murder in Chicago. Two-thirds of all homicides go unsolved in the Windy City. 
Uh, and this is after it's revealed that half of all U.S. murderers are never brought to justice. The United States has the lowest murder clearance rate of any industrialized country. That is pathetic and sad. Germany, by contrast, now clears 90% of its murder cases. Wow. Uh, I just thought that was an, an interesting fact. This article, obviously, I was looking into unsolved murders and just happened to mention Germany in the text. I thought, yeah. well, that's perfect. Yeah. The definition of a cleared murder case being one where the suspect has been identified and arrested. Uh, Oakland, California, believe it or not, is even worse than Chicago, with only 36% of murders cleared in 2022. Uh, the murder clearance rate in the United States dipped below 50% in 2020 and has not come back. So we were already pretty bad, and now we're worse. Uh, the U.S. is the worst of the developed nations at solving murders. Experts say that America's abysmal clearance numbers are, quote, undermining whatever trust there is left in the police. And it's a vicious circle. Communities that are especially impacted by gun violence believe that the police are ineffective or indifferent, and as a result, they're less willing to cooperate and provide information the police need to have successful investigations. <laughs> uh, FBI officials say that a murder can be labeled cleared by exceptional means. Exceptional means clearances include when a suspect is found dead, cannot be extradited, or prosecutors refuse to press charges. And so some criminologists note that some cities are improving their clearance rates by using this criteria, which literally means oh, we're not going to press charges. So you can just decide not to press charges and it makes your clearance rate go up. So it's, it's even worse than that. Corrupt, corrupt. The, and and like, like the criminal, the experts say, they're just toying around with their numbers just, just to make them look better. Wow. I mean, as if people have enough reasons to be distrustful, please. Hey, here's the deal. I'm going to say this. Maybe it's going to sound a little bad. I'm a middle-aged white guy in America. I get nervous when the cops pull me over. If <laughs> it's only happened a couple times, but still. Yeah. Like, I, I seriously have developed a distrust of police over the years because of all of the stuff you hear. Now, let's not say all cops are bad. I had a friend that worked here in town. I was say, I'm not going to call him out. Uh, good dude. Like, I, you know, if he pulled me over, I probably deserved it. To be fair, I've only been pulled over a couple of times, and, and at least twice I deserved it. I've met some great ones, and, and I've met some not-so-great ones. We'll but leave it but seriously, that. in this day and age, I mean, you worry that you're going to say the wrong thing. And Well, you were just talking about the unsolved murder rates, and I'm thinking, you know, we did a podcast on the Springfield 3. How long? How many years is that? But 40 years, I think, now? Yeah. Uh, unsolved. The, the, there was a gentleman that was uh, burned in his car here in yeah. Lebanon. Uh, I don't think they ever really fully disclosed all that. Of course, we've had the whole cannibalism ordeal uh, not too far from they, here. That's they have to pay out to the family. Did you see $3 that headline? $3 million? Dollars? Yeah, like they're never going to get that. Yeah, how are they going to get $3 million? That's ridiculous. From, yeah. uh, that's the Cassidy Rainwater case that we actually did a podcast on. But yeah, just, I mean, I'm just thinking in the Springfield region, yeah. I mean, just around here, there's just a lot area. of unsolved deaths. Well, my headline, I'm going to ask if you've ever heard of the Richardson murders up in Alberta, Canada. Now, this, was, I this was a family murder. That's kind of what brought me to this. But then it had a nightmarish on the lost highway twist. I was doing a bit of a deep dive into bizarre murder cases, especially for families, uh, for my headlines this week, and one stuck out to me. <laughs> Now, bear with me as I lead up to motive, which I will just tell you now. I will put this out there so you'll follow along. It involves one of the murders claiming to be a werewolf. Wow. You heard me right. A werewolf. This is right from Wikipedia, the first part of this. The three members of the Richardson family were murdered in Medicine Hat, Alberta, Canada in April of 2006. The murders were planned and committed by the family's 12-year-old daughter, Jasmine Richardson, 
and her, get ready for this, 12-year-old daughter and her 23-year-old boyfriend. Well, there's a problem right there. There's a problem right there. As the father of a teenage daughter. Jeremy Steinecke, the boyfriend, now going by the name of Jackson May Richardson and Steinecke were each convicted on three accounts of first-degree murder. Richardson, who had turned 13 before being convicted, is thought to be the youngest person in Canada ever convicted of multiple first-degree murder counts. Her 10-year sentence was completed on May 6th of 2016. Now, the discovery. At 1 p.m. on April 23, 2006, the bodies of 42-year-old Mark Richardson and his 48-year-old wife, Deborah, were found in the basement of their home, and the body of their 8-year-old son, Tyler Jacob, was discovered upstairs. Absent from the home at the time was the couple's 12-year-old daughter, Jasmine. Now, for a time, it was feared that she might also have been a victim during this murder spree. But then she was arrested the following day in the community of Leader, Saskatchewan, uh, about 81 miles away, with her, again, 23-year-old boyfriend, Jeremy Allen Steinke. Now, both were charged with three murders. Now, later on in May, May 3rd, 2006, uh, Steinke's friend Casey Lancaster, who was 19, was charged as being an accessory for driving the couple away in her pickup truck and helping to dispose of evidence. Now, motive. According to the friends of Jasmine, Richardson's parents had grounded her for dating Steinecke because of the age discrepancy. Imagine that. Uh, 12 and 23. Uh, her friends had also criticized their relationship. Uh, and shortly after the arrest, Steinecke asked her to marry him. And Richardson agreed. According to friends, Steinecke, he told them that he was a 300-year-old werewolf. He allegedly told his friends he liked the taste of blood and even wore a small vial of blood around his neck. He'd also had a user account on VampireFreaks.com website. The girl had a page at that same site, leading to speculations they had met there. Now, apparently this is kind of some Canadian-based website for gothic couples to meet kind of thing. Just kind of put it in perspective. Weird. However, their acquaintance, uh, Steinecke, later said the couple actually met up at a punk rock show in the early 2006, and that's where they actually first met. The couple was also found to be communicating on Nexopia, a popular website for young Canadians. So there were several possibilities here. Various messages they had sent to each other was available to the public before the accounts were permanently removed by the Nexopia staff. So... We got a werewolf that says he's 300 years old. He's actually 23, but almost twice the age of the 12-year-old daughter who go in and kill the entire family in Canada. So Messed up. You can't make this stuff up, folks. I remember in high school when the girls would talk about dating some guy and he was college age or whatever. Like, as a high school boy, that seemed really irritating. Yeah. Which I get the girls mature faster than boys. Uh, to be fair, I'm still waiting to become an adult. So... <laughs> That sounds weird. I, I literally had a conversation the other day. So um, the, the, the place where I work, mm-hmm. it, it, it's, uh, you know, it, it's a lot of the important people work there. And, and we, somebody was talking about like they were uncomfortable around and they were trying to find the right way to use the word. Like, I, you know, when you're like around, like, like it was talking about like when you're at your job and like a manager or something, a VP or whatever comes in. And I was like, adults? And the person looked at me and goes, <laughs> they, they, what do you mean adult? We're all adults. And I was like, 
I don't know if it's just Speak the way for my yourself. I don't know if it's the way my brain works, but like I see that difference in like, oh, that's a, he's an important person in the company. He's an adult, you know, like executive I still level. See that kind of thing. So I used to always joke that you know you're only as as old as as you act, but unfortunately, my body is making me act a little older than what I want I, to feel. I went on a hike yesterday. The weather was so nice. It was 60-something degrees oh, in, in February, uh, first week of February. And I went on a hike. And, uh, Missouri weather. Hang on. We'll probably have a yeah. blizzard tomorrow. Oh, yeah. We went to Hahatanka, and we, we started at the castle, and we walked down to the lake, and we walked back up to the castle. And That's frankly, a hike. That at, is a hike. At a certain point, I thought I was going to have to get rescued. <laughs> and and Oxygen! After I got home and I had been sitting for a little while, I seriously... Like you ever watch the Osbournes, the mm. way Ozzy walked, like <laughs> I was shuffling through the house to the kitchen to get a drink of Old water. Oh, man, shuffle. I, my body just, yeah, like I still love playing video games and board games and acting like an idiot. And, you know, we do this every couple of weeks, uh, sit around and tell ghost stories. <laughs> and yeah, I just, some days I feel like I'm 80 years old. Some days my body definitely makes me feel 80 years old. So to our question, now, Bill, Sir. I'm going to challenge you tonight. To do a bit of role playing, you know, we both play. Oh, I'm not a good little, at that. We do a lot of RPG games, but uh, you're going to be playing the role of a thief, a looter during World War II. <laughs> you're one of those vagabond, low life scums that steals whatever you can, sell it for the highest amount of profit so to whoever be, pays the most. I can't be a gentleman thief. No, no, oh, no, okay. no, no, no. You really don't have any morals at all. It's just profit seeking, low life. Okay, so get in the role, get in that mindset. You receive intelligence that while Germany is being attacked, there's a museum filled with precious artifacts, rare paintings, manuscripts, and boxes, and boxes of goodies, and all you're seeing's dollar signs. You sneak in. You gain access. Grab what you can as quick as you can. There's no time to open boxes. Just load as much as you can <laughs> and escape to later check your spoils. So days passed. You feel safe now. Your secluded place. You crack open a wooden crate, one of those that looks like it's out of Indiana Jones. You pry off the lid, and inside you find several human-preserved heads. Well, I, heads or skulls? They said they were preserved. Okay. Well, I, I, so I'm going to say heads. Okay, okay heads. But the good question. Good question. I love the way you're getting into this. <laughs> but I'm going to say, since this is a 1942-43 era, it's only about 20 years after the whole infamous murder cases we just talked about, and the family of the Hinterkaifeck murders, you recognize a label on this. What would you do with them? Well, if I'm a dirty, no good scumbag thief, scumbag thief, I just chuck them. You can't sell. Well, no. Oh, I take it back. Well, you got connections in the deep black market. But here's the deal: like, I'd like to assume that humanity, low life scum. Bear with me here. I'd like to assume <laughs> that humanity is getting worse as time goes by. I know things like that you could probably sell on some kind of black market for an outrageous price That's now. That's what been back in the 40s. But I mean, if you go back 80 years. We were years, selling mummy hands and parts and stuff out of Egypt. Yeah, that's true. I was going to say, I, was, I would hope that maybe you wouldn't be able to find a market for that. Oh, no. You're low-life scum. You, you know oh, people. Oh, if I can find a market for it and I'm low-life scum, then I'm selling that. Like, I'm going to make a fortune. And I'm holding out. Dude, because this is like unsolved murder you evidence. Got that right. Yeah. But now, now, me as a person, wind it forward. I'm horrified by the idea. Probably just leave like, it. Just, just leave oh, everything. God, no, I would have it. I would have to turn it over to the authorities, even if it meant like, 
maybe one of those anonymous like here's a box leave it then call with directions like scrub (laughs) it down with acid and wear gloves when i drop it off kind of thing i mean me personally i couldn't like if i found something that i thought was going to be evidence yeah, yeah i would absolutely turn it over yeah but Again, if I was low life, good for nothing. And like I said, and I know nowadays, like in, in our modern society, oh, there's a market you could for absolutely everything. sell that for a fortune. Yeah. You get, if somebody had those heads today and sold them on, which chances some kind are of, somebody, somebody could, might, and they sold them on some kind of black, you could set yourself up for life with something like that. Yeah. How horribly. It's a horrible thought. It is. But there's those people out there. Yeah, I mean, they're out there. But and ugh. these were lost during some of those museum raids. So you wonder, did somebody open it up like, oh my gosh, no, I'm not touching these and pitch yeah. them in a ditch? Or did they get sold on a black market and maybe they're setting somewhere on display or at least behind a locked room and key somewhere? S- sitting in Elon Musk's house somewhere. Ooh, boy, he's coming for you now. He's got satellites. He knows where you're at, dude. I guess he doesn't own Amazon, though. <laughs> he doesn't own iTunes. That's where my, my podcast goes. I wonder if he I'm watches, not making any money off of it. I wonder if he watches YouTube. Oh, man. <laughs> you know that guy. Okay, totally unrelated, but we do this every now and then. <laughs> I have found my new favorite thing in the world. I found this last night. I watched this with my daughter, and then I made my son watch it with me today. There's a video uh, channel on YouTube that has gender-swapped celebrities, and you have to identify them. It's become my new favorite thing. Oh, wow. They... Some of them are obvious, some of them not so much. But I will say, the gender swap Bezos looks like that teacher that you had in school that yelled at everybody for no reason. Now, are these legitimate, like, gender swaps permanent? It's like an or, AI thing. Oh, okay. So it's like it, it's a, a digital, mock-up kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, it's okay, a digital. Okay. They, they take, like, Chris Evans, you know, Captain America. And they, uh, okay, okay. They do a gender swap thing, and then you have to figure out who it, who it is. I got you. Okay. And some of them are pretty obvious, but then some of them aren't so much obvious. But then some of them... um. Is it Logan Paul? Mm-hmm. Gender, gender swap Logan Paul is a strikingly attractive woman. Mm-hmm. Now, I would never admit to that. But you just did. Except, you know, nationally. In, front, in, in front of our hundreds of listeners, <laughs> dozens or whatever. But it was, it was just a weird little thing. But again, it's. That's interesting. I'll have to check that out. I don't know how we got here. I like weird things. You like brought that, up Bezos and that. I didn't bring up Bezos. Did I? I brought, you somebody, brought up Bezos. Somebody brought up Bezos. We're was, making fun of millionaires this week. We were making fun of millionaires this week, yeah. It's probably going to shut us down. This may be the last episode anybody gets to listen to. Well, we love, uh, what was his name? What did Trump call him? Uh, Scott Apple or whatever. Tim Apple. Tim Apple. Yeah. yeah. Well, we hope that you've enjoyed at least a portion. <laughs> again. Again. Of we know not everything's great. Yes. But we have fun doing it. We hope that we uh, drag you along kicking and screaming sometimes to enjoy the ride of yet another episode you'll hear on Nightmares on the Lost Highway. Thanks for putting up with us. Hey, real quick, call to action. I think Eric would agree. We'd like to grow this Nightmares on the Lost Highway. Absolutely. If you could, if you're listening on Apple, if you would go and give us a review and, and rate us. Uh, if you have some feedback, that's fine, too. Uh, whatever whatever platform you're listening, follow us, rate us, give us some reviews. That helps get some recognition and gets our name out there. We do have a Facebook page, Nightmares on the Lost Highway. You can easily find us if you want to communicate with us. If you want to share some uh, possibilities for future podcasts with us, you know, reach out. We want to talk with you guys. So the last little bit of investigation in 2007. More than 80 years after the emergency. After the. What was I even going to say? More <laughs> than. No, 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 no. 
The Steineke's were each convicted on three accounts of the first-degree murder of the Richardson family, who had... uh, Strike that. I totally got off on that. It's together, man. Yeah, I know. Jasmine, enter. Want to take a time to thank the people that helped bring this all together. Uh, Alex Tudor, you can almost call him our producer at this point. Sarah Tudor, who also helps with some of the technical stuff. I want to take a moment to extend thanks to Eric for letting us use his space to record in kind of our makeshift studio. I, in turn, would like to thank Bill for, one, putting up with me and uh, using this camaraderie to do something we both very much love and enjoy doing. And thank Bill's family for allowing him to spend all the time to work and clean up our recordings and present them in what uh, you hear in the final uh, terms, uh, the final edition, if you will. And I'd like to thank all of you for continuing to, to listen. I know we've got some loyal followers out there. We do this as a labor of love, but we're, we're happy that there are people that enjoy it as, hopefully as much as we do. Thank you very much.